Welcome listeners. This is Al Getz and you are listening to Charting the Territories, the podcast that takes a unique data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era. Along with me as always is my co-host John Boucher. John, have you adjusted? We are recording this the day uh, right after we uh, set the clocks uh, back. So John, have you adjusted to this uh, new level of darkness outside? Not yet. No, I'm, I am. Uh, I, 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 the seasonal depression has already crept in. I am ready for bed. That was quick. Yep. Already. It's, it's, it's there already, baby. 430 is there. Boom. All right. Well, then we'll, we'll try and make this quick. So we, you don't <laughs> fall asleep on me. Uh, this month, we are going to look at the Vancouver, British Columbia based all-star wrestling territory in 1971 owned at the time by Shandor Kovacs and former NWA world heavyweight champ, Gene Kaniski. The territory ran shows in British Columbia and a good chunk of Washington state. Besides Kaniski, another former world heavyweight champ competed in the territory in 1971. We'll look at the entire roster and dole out some unique and interesting fun facts about many of them. We'll also run down some of the biggest feuds, look at some attendance figures we have for the cards run in Washington and in Vancouver, plus a special look at one of the top baby faces in the territory in 1971, Stephen Little Bear. As always, we're going to post a lot of the things that we talk about on this episode to X, the application or website formerly known as Twitter, to make it easier for you to find all of these uh, interesting documents and tidbits. We're going to use a hashtag, uh, a different hashtag every month. So this month's hashtag will be hashtag CTTNOV23. So that's CTT for charting the territories, NOV for November, and 23 for the year 2023. We're also going to have all of our usual segments, including stuff John bought me off eBay. This month I learned, and we're going to have the first edition of the new version of John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, where John will compete against a different guest challenger every month. But first, let's discuss the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame and reveal our ballots. So, John, why don't you go ahead and first and talk about who's on your ballot and briefly explain why? My, my, my ballot really, I looked at this year's ballot and I compared it to, to, to last year's and I it barely changed. Um, <laughs> so there, nothing, if nothing, I am consistent in, in who I who I want to see in there. Um I voted only in the historical performers and modern performers and non-wrestlers categories. Uh, trying to stay in my lane, you know. This is what I know. This is what I can vote with confidence in. So I stuck to those three. Um, and the historical performers, I voted for June Byers, uh, Wild Bull Curry, Raka. Perez, uh, Junkyard Dog, Johnny Rougeau, uh, The Stomper, Mongolian Stomper, Archie Gouldy, Carrie Kevin and David Von Erich, and Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, a lot of these, like the older folks, like Wild Bull Curry, like I, I always look at that as like, I don't know, he's just, he, he seems like an omission that needs to be corrected. That's that's the best best way I could describe my vote for him. June Byers, I also I sort of feel is in the same sort of category, you know, for you know, for a period of ten years, she was one of the top 
women's wrestlers with her, her and Mildred Burke in the pre the pre Mula years. And I really do think she deserves a ton of credit that she doesn't get for sort of legitimizing women's wrestling in that era, sort of. I don't want to say that 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 brash and showy is necessarily a bad thing, but she sort of toned that down for lack of lack of a better term and those 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 more showy aspects of wrestling and made it more legitimate. Um, also, Rock and Perez, you know, I think just look at their their numbers are just insane. I think I also mentioned this last year that Rocka had already been wrestling for 10 years at this point, starting to slow down. So teaming with the Perez, Perez deserves that credit here, helping to extend the career of Rocka. You know, I don't think Miguel Perez is necessarily a Hall of Famer on his own, but as part of this tag team, yes. JYD, we talked about at length all the time. I absolutely think he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, Johnny Rougeau, I think, is also another one that should be in, aside from wrestling and promoting a legitimate pop culture icon in Montreal. Talk to any of the Montreal people, Bertrand, DeBaire, Pat LaProde. Talk to Greg Oliver. They can sell you on him way more effectively than I can. Um, and the Stomper, again, the, the, he he just, he, he you go down the list, Stomper checks every box for me. Uh, you know, and the fact that he's able to do that same gimmick uh, over the course of 30 years, from you know from from calgary to to knoxville uh says a lot um slaughter again i love sarge um i uh, underrated in every aspect of his game i think he's an underrated uh underrated heel promo underrated babyface promo uh i think his work is fantastic uh work rate wise i think he's great um a thoroughly, thoroughly underrated brawler. And even as far as psychology goes, watch Slaughter in, you know, I know the the the, the, the alley fight with Patterson gets a lot of love, but the, the, the stuff with the Sheik, Iron Sheik, the boot camp match, probably one of the best brawls I, I've i ever seen. I, I remember watching that live June 16th, 1984 on the MSG Network. And it was, it, I love it. It's, it's, that's how you do a brawl. There's no headlocks. He just runs right in, starts banging away on the sheet with his helmet. Fantastic. And again, Von Eric's like, I could see it's hard to vote for either three of those guys as a singles competitor, but I think getting them in as the trio, that's the way to go. Uh, you know, for modern performers, uh, I voted for Randy Orton, CM Punk. Rick and Scott Steiner, uh, Randy Orton. I think you convinced me of Randy Orton a couple of years ago, and I finally got around for voting of him. Um, CM Punk, if anything, has uh, say what you want about CM. Uh, people have a lot of opinions about him, and th- those opinions are one of the reasons why I think he is a a a, a absolute Hall of Famer. Uh, Rick and Scott Steiner, again, just look at the amount of times they've been uh, observer tag team of the year. They you know by that alone they should be in in the hall of fame uh non-wrestlers same as i voted last year bobby davis just you know without him there's no bobby heenan there's no jim Cornette. james melby without his work you know we reference it on a daily basis uh graham wizard uh as a manager yes and also uh for his work with the, the wfia conventions and how 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 lovely he was to 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 fans super fans of that era 
uh, Morris Siegel and Roy Welch sort of under the same umbrella. I think they both need to be in. And I also added Stanley Weston to my list for just for for being Stanley Weston. Uh, and th- those, th- those are my votes. How about you, Al? All right. Well, those are your votes and those are all good votes, John. So good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as for mine, the big difference between our ballots is I have less. We voted in the same three categories. I only did historical performers, modern performers, and non-wrestlers. But nice. I have uh, less uh, nominees in each category. I, I, um, I understand a lot of people are, are intentionally voting for as many as possible uh, because they feel uh, certain eras are underrepresented, and they're probably right. I just feel it's a little more of an exclusive club. So we're going to start with the historical performers. I uh, voted for one, two, three, four, five, six candidates, uh, Junkyard Dog. And of course, this is the first year that Junkyard Dog, as well as Sergeant Slaughter, are in the historical performers category. Previously, they were put in the modern performers category because their um, their career was still going on 30 years ago as of 92, as of 2022, but now their move to the older one. I think that's going to be good for both JYD and Slaughter. But JYD, again, we've talked about him on this podcast in the past. When you talk to people that grew up on Mid-South in the early 80s, it's different. It's similar to, um, you know, Lawler, Rougeau, the, the, you know, not just a guy who was a, a top wrestler for many years in that area, but it transcended wrestling. And everyone I talked to, that grew up in New Orleans or Mid-South area at that time has said the same thing. And historical significance is also why I voted once again for Sputnik Monroe. Uh, again, in many ways, Sputnik, you know, almost paved paved the path for someone like a junkyard dog to hmm. get that main event spot in the South. Uh, plus also, as I've said before, Sputnik was versatile. Um, he had a long career. He could be plugged in on top anywhere. He went as a heel or as a baby face. His work, I mean, he's no, you know, he's no dynamite kid or, you know, Kenny Omega, but he he knew how to get the fans up off their feet, either cheering or screaming bloody murder. Um, like you, Rocca and Perez, and you brought up a very good point when you talked about it because um it, it helped lengthen Rocca's career. And as much as people want to say, well, they only drew well as a team because of Rocca, if Rocca had not been in a tag team and still had been thrown out and tried to be pushed at the top. Given his the decline of his work, it probably would not have worked. So Perez literally injected uh, a few years more life into Rocca at the box office. And I think they're both worthy. As uh, like you said, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, again, it just, uh, you know, he was, uh, I, I include the run with Kernodal. I know some people are looking at the tag team runs separately as separate buckets. I'm looking at the entirety of Slaughter's career. Um, I think, as you said, his work is underrated. I also think back, back to JYD. I think JYD's WWF run as pretty much the number two babyface for a, a good little run there is not really, um, recognized as much. So JYD, Sputnik, Rocca and Perez, Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, I also voted again for the Von Brauners. Um, you talk about longevity uh, between the two different versions of one of the Von Brauners. Um, they had a good 10 plus year run. Uh, and wherever they went, be it Gulf Coast, Goulas, Florida, Amarillo, they were instantly uh, the top 
heel team, instant heat getters with Saul Weingroff. And, and this it's the package of the Von Brauners and Saul in particular mm-hmm. that I am voting for. Saul, particularly, you know, being of Jewish descent and it being pretty clear, managing the Germans, you know, that that brings a different aspect of heat to the equation that I respect. Um, two wrestlers who I voted for last year who I did not vote for this year. One is one who's no longer on the ballot, and that was Enrique Torres. Mm-hmm. And the other is uh, Bull Curry. Um, I bumped him so that I could vote for someone you also voted for, and that's Johnny Rougeau. Huh. And the big selling point for me was I, I read uh, all the various articles that have been that have come out uh, making the case for certain Hall of Famers. But I I read Pat Laprade's um, piece from that he wrote several years ago about Rougeau. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it just uh, put him over the top for me. So that is a total of six acts, two tag teams, and four wrestlers that I voted for in the historical performers category. In the modern performers category last year, I voted for Slaughter and JYD in this category. Of course, they're no longer in there. I also voted for Becky Lynch. I did not vote for her this year. Um and instead, I voted for a team I voted for last year that you also voted for. That's Rick and Scott Steiner. And I also voted for Roman Reigns. Um, the Steiners, as you said, tag team of the year, great in ring. And, and the two of them very different. Scott, of course, very innovative, um, but they worked really well as a team. They were over for a long period of time in the U.S. and in Japan. Uh, I really think they deserve to be in. And I think Roman, uh, every year, uh, you know, in the last five years, he has improved his case significantly every single year. And I think this year sort of put it over the top for me. As far as the non-wrestlers, I voted for uh, the same three people that I voted for last year, and that is Bobby Davis, Stanley Weston, and Roy Welch. In the case of Bobby Davis, as you said, without Bobby Davis, there's no Bobby Heenan, there's no Jim Cornette, but I'd like to add, without Heenan or Cornette, there's no Al Getz. There you go. (laughs) So it's even more personal for me. You draw a straight line. There you go. Yes, that, that there you go. If that's your Mount Rushmore of wrestling managers, A, seek help, but B, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stanley Weston, again, if we're talking pioneers in their field, uh, Stanley certainly does that. And Roy Welch, uh, the longevity of his uh, promotional career and, and the fact that he had his hand in so many, you know, in, in, in more than just one territorial pot over the years, uh, uh, that puts him in for me. So those yeah. are our Hall of Fame ballots. Uh, I think we both have already submitted ours to Dave Meltzer with the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. And hopefully we will see some of our uh, selections get in this year. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, I also, before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to make a minor correction from last month's podcast about the Houston TV. And this info came from two sources. First is Travis Cook who's a listener and who also follows us on Facebook. Um, and also um, from Tom Pritchard via Bo James, because uh, oh. Bo asked Tom about it. And of course, Tom would would certainly be a good uh, person to know. Um, I had said that Houston ran their house shows on Friday night and may have taped TV Saturday morning. That is not the case for at least the large portion of, of the existence of Houston. Um, they, their TV show aired some of the matches from the Friday night house show. Um, 
There was not a separate TV taping. Uh, at first, and this was before the 70s, at first the TV was aired live on Friday nights. But it was eventually moved to Saturdays with a re-airing on Sundays. And it typically did not show the main events, just the first few matches, similar hmm. to how Portland or Fort Worth did it in later yep. years. Hmm. So, uh, as I say all the time, we're going to make little mistakes regularly. It's part of the deal. And if we are uh, made aware of these mistakes, we do our best to point it out. So, there you go. But we're going to go ahead and move on to stuff John bought me off eBay. And, John, you forced me to learn a new word this month. <laughs> Does it begin with an F? Is it an F word? It, it begins with an F, but it is not <laughs> the F word. It is a five-letter word, and it is Flong. Flong. F-L-O-N-G. So, yep. John, you might be more familiar. You might be able to define it to our listeners better than I. What incarnations is a flong? <laughs> a flong is, is uh, you know, it's, it's, it's used in the letterpress printing process. It's basically a mold, uh, paper-based. A lot of times you'll see people, people refer to them as uh, almost like a paper mache type mold, but I, I don't think it's necessarily technically the same as paper mache. It's just a, a mix of flour, water, alum, and whatever else the printer wants to throw in there. Um, it's essentially it's cast from a a a print either printing blocks if it was type, or in the case of our item today. Uh, it would be from a a form f o r m e, and from this, a metal stereotype is what it's called would be cast, and then from there, that would be used to print in the letterpress process, either via a, a flatbed or rotary printer. Uh, so it's almost like a it's almost like a negative. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like, so if you're thinking about putting together an ad, like I think a lot of our listeners have seen the old school wrestling ads with the different pictures of the different wrestlers. In all likelihood, they may have used flongs for each wrestler's yeah. picture and then just sort of arrange them uh, the way they're going to look on the ad and then use that to make the actual ad that, that you see in the paper, correct? Yep, yep. correct. So correct. This is not a picture of a wrestler. It's a picture of part of a wrestler. Yes, in particular, perhaps his most famous part. And yes. no, I'm not talking about Ron Fuller. Oh, Jesus. I would have been able to be printed in the newspapers. But I am no. talking about uh, Fritz von Erich's claw. Yeah, this is yeah, this is really cool. I love the way this is uh, that. It, you may have seen that this is in some of the, uh, a lot of the uh, the Dallas programs over the years. It's almost like a, it almost looks like a comic book, you know, rendering of a, of a, of a, of a claw. Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a. Uh, and if it, you don't, know, if you don't know that it's a claw, it kind of looks like a dinosaur, like a <laughs> like a, a T Rex or something from the neck up, opening its mouth, about to devour somebody. It does. It's very frightening. But it's really cool. Well, I think I, if I had the choice between a T Rex and Fritz von Erich's claw, I'd have to think about it. I'd still say I'd rather have the claw than the T Rex, but I'd at least give it a few seconds thought. Yes. So this was very cool, and this apparently is the original, an original flong yeah. back in the day uh, when they needed a image of Fritz von Erich's hand uh, about to uh, put the claw on an unsuspecting opponent. 
Yeah, I have a soft spot for all these old, like weird, pr- whether it's negatives or printing stuff or, you know, whatever it is. I, lo- I love the, the the printing stuff from these old programs. Anytime I find stuff like that, I try to grab it either for, for you or for me. One yeah. of us. That's what I like about this is that, yes, we do have a lot of uh, audio things and, and things, but you send me different stuff all the time. You sent me a Eugene pillow. You sent me a <laughs> uh, cake tin. Uh, I like, you know, I like how I never know what's going to be in, in, inside when I open it up. Yeah. So that's great. And that's what I also love about charting the territories is, you know, when you look at a territory in a, for the first time in a certain year, you really don't know what you're going to find. I mean, you have a general idea of who some of the top guys were. Um, you know, certainly if you're looking at central states or Vancouver, uh, chances are Bob Brown's going to be in one of them at some point in the calendar year. But <laughs> I, I just really love looking at, you know, looking at all the different names that come in and out of territories. And this year, this month, we're going to look at Vancouver in 1971. Uh, I refer to it as Vancouver parentheses, all-star wrestling. Um, I think the business name was Northwest, sorry, Northwest wrestling promotions. Um, but I typically, I just call it Vancouver much in the same way we call Memphis, Memphis or Portland, Portland. So uh, to check out a year in the life for Vancouver in 1971, you can go to chartingtheterritories.com where there's a whole lot of information. And in fact, for all the wrestlers on the roster, if there's a nice article or obituary on slam wrestling, we also provide a link to that. Uh, We are going to now on this podcast, run down the roster for the territory. This is a, a list of the wrestlers who worked here regularly for at least some part of the year. And they're put into different categories based on their average weekly spot rating, which is our exclusive statistic that measures a wrestler's average position on the cards. So we're going to start with our main event baby faces. Uh, first on the list is Don Leo Jonathan. Ooh, Don Leo once in a Wheaties commercial. Wow. I didn't know that. Now, mm-hmm. what's, yeah. One thing that I found interesting, this sounds like a real odd couple tag team, but he teamed regularly in Southern California in 1963 with Freddie Blassie, hmm. the, vampire, the vampire and the, Mor- and the Mormon. Yeah. Uh, also, Stephen Little Bear. And of course, we're going to talk in depth about Stephen later on in this podcast. Next up is Mark Lewin. Mark Lewin. Uh has wrestled every person to hold the NWA World Heavyweight title from and he, might have wrestled, and he might have wrestled every person, period. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All the way through to the fourth reign of Ric Flair. I could find no record of Mark Lewin having a match against Ronnie Garvin, but everyone from Dick Hutton all the way to the fourth reign of Ric Flair, Mark Lewin has wrestled them. Wow. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can find a match with him and Ronnie. Uh, <laughs> early in his career, Mark worked in Southern California under the ring name Skippy Jackson. Skippy. Yeah. Cute. Up next, uh, Tex McKenzie. Well, despite being named, nicknamed Tex, he spent most of his formative years being raised in North Dakota. And he was actually born in Edmonds, Washington. Oh. And- while he may have been the tallest person from that city, he almost certainly wasn't the smartest, as Ken Jennings of Jeopardy fame is also for Edmonds. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, now looking at the main event heels. Uh, of course, as I said, you can't talk about Central States or Vancouver without this guy popping up mm-hmm. sooner or later. Uh, Bulldog Bob Brown. Prior to wrestling, uh, he worked as a volunteer policeman and fireman in Manitoba. Now, his first stint in Heart of America, Central States, was in November 1964, and his first three documented matches there 
were against Don Slatton, Ron Reed, and Larry Hamilton, which is quite the trio. You've got the lawman, the future buddy Colt. Wow. Uh, after Bob Brown, we have Gene Kaniski. Uh, Kaniski teamed with Chris Jericho and Lance Storm in his final match. Wow. That, I, that, that's that's completely new info to me. That's pretty cool. Now, yeah. we talked about Don Leo, Jonathan uh, earlier. Kaniski and Don Leo have 53 documented singles bouts against one another on WrestlingData.com where we know hmm. the result. And surprisingly, Gene has the advantage. Gene won 25. Gene lost 15, and 13 of them were draws. Huh. He has a very good win-loss record against Don Leo Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, up next, someone who we referred to earlier as another former world heavyweight champion in this territory, came in for a couple of months in the summer, and that is Ivan Koloff. When he first worked in Pittsburgh, uh, he was billed as Orwell Paris, which is sort of a, a take on his real name, uh, which I'm going to try to pronounce. Uh, was it Oriel Paris, perhaps? Well, what's interesting is the earliest documented match we have for Koloff under that name was late 1965 at a TV taping in Pittsburgh where he did the job to Bruno Sammartino. All right, look at that, yeah. Uh, also uh, here, and he wasn't here. Sometimes this wrestler came in just for big shows in Vancouver, going back and forth between Portland, but he actually had a sustained run as a full-timer here in 1971, and that is Dutch Savage. Uh, went to high school with Luke Brown. Fascinating. Yeah. Also, uh, we have John Quinn. John Quinn, after wrestling, John Quinn worked as a truck driver and a cab driver. When John Quinn wrestled as Virgil the Kentucky Butcher, he feuded with Bruno Sammartino in 1968. And this was a time when Bruno rarely lost, even by DQ or count out or other means. But John Quinn beat him at least twice. Uh, again, not by clean pin, but, you know, at a time when Bruno didn't lose much, if at all, huh. uh, Quinn holds two victories over him. Interesting. We also have a tag team uh, that came in for a brief run, and that is the Skull Brothers. The Skull Brothers were John Medincia, a.k.a. J.B. Psycho, and Ray Elmore, a.k.a. Cowboy Parker. Um, just to re reiterate something we uncovered earlier this year, Medincia worked as Ripper Collins in Heart of America in 1976, while the real Ripper Collins was in Stampede. Huh. And then finally on the list of main event heels, Angelo Mosca. Angelo Mosca originally played college football at Notre Dame, but was expelled after betting on sports. <laughs> uh, if there was an award for father of the blandest second generation wrestler of all time, oh, geez. not only would Angelo Mosca be on the list, but someone we just <laughs> talked about a little while ago, Gene Kaniski, I think the two of them would be an easy one too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, moving on down the roster to upper mid-card baby faces. Uh, someone we talked about last month, uh, Dean Higuchi. Mm. Uh, and then next up is Duncan McTavish. Ah, oh, he served in the uh, Canadian military during the uh, Korean War. He was also born in the Scottish town of Cumnock, located in the council area of East Ayrshire. And I say those things only because they all those words sound completely made up to me. They They do. They do. Uh, next up is Les Thornton. Les Thornton. Uh, he was the guy apparently wrestling in a little friendly, friendly, friendly shoot with Dory Funk Sr. right before Sr. had his fatal heart attack. And if Les Thornton's dad had been a wrestler, I might have to rethink what I said earlier about Mosca and Kaniski. 
<laughs> Still in the upper mid-card section of the roster, but now on the heel side, first up is Mike Webster. Webster, another Notre Dame and Canadian Football League alumnus and the Montreal Alouettes, I believe. Had a fascinating post-wrestling career as a clinical psychologist. Uh, in fact, he was called in by the FBI to Waco, Texas, to aid in negotiations during the 51-day Branch Davidian standoff. Wow. Next up, Gorilla Marconi, a.k.a. Frank Marconi. Between uh, 1940 and 1943, he lived more or less full-time in South America, wrestling mostly in Brazil. And uh, my take on Marconi, if we ever have a spinoff project entitled Charting Wrestler's Body Hair, Marconi would, without a doubt, be mentioned on every episode. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> Earl Black, a.k.a. Sailor Black in Portland. He was forced to retire, just only 27 years old, of uh, recurring back and injuries over the years. Yeah, and I believe uh, the onset of those recurring injuries were due to his having contracted a bone infection called osteomyelitis while on a ship from London to Australia. Uh, yeah, from, from London to Australia. I think he got water on the knee, um, but because he was on a ship for a long period of time, it went untreated and he developed a bone infection. Oh, wow. Oof. Moving down to the mid cards, uh, baby faces include Pepe Villa, Freddie Barron. Freddie Barron, uh, in addition to wrestling, also worked for Don Leo Jonathan's commercial diving business. And then also Dan Crawford. Dan Crawford, we talked about this uh, a few years back, but was once involved in a hostage crisis while working as a prison guard. Yeah, and I also want to mention that Crawford is still alive and kicking, and in fact, recently commented on a post I made on the Facebook. What? Wow. <laughs> uh, next up is uh, Danny Babich. Danny Babich once defeated Terry Funk in front of 18,000 fans in Puerto Rico. Yeah, he was a beneficiary of the Calgary-Puerto Rico connection, which I think was established when Carlos uh, worked in Stampede as Carlos yeah. Belafonte. Uh, in Puerto Rico, he was generally billed, I believe, as Daniel Martel and teamed with Michelle Martel. Huh. And then finally on the mid-card babyfaces, Eric Freilich. Eric worked, also worked as Eric Rommel in East Texas in the early 60s. Yeah, I think, you know, I think he worked in both sides of Texas as Eric Rommel. Um, but his earliest documented match was in April 1960 against someone we just mentioned, Freddie Barron. Ah. Now, on the heel side of the mid-card levels, uh, someone we talked about last month and we've talked about before, Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, and then Mr. Ota, who's uh, also known as Gentetsu Matsuoka. He took a part in a tag match against Bobo Brazil in 1970 that is said to be the first racially integrated match to take place in the city of Atlanta. He also feuded with Danny Hodge in 1970 in the McGurk territory. And then when Oda returned to Japan a couple of years later, uh, he began crushing an apple as part of his shtick. <laughs> in Japan against Hodge. Wow. Kurt Von Hess. Before uh, shaving his head and transforming into Kurt Von Hess, he uh, he ran an Orange Crush soda distributorship. Soldat Gorky, a.k.a. John Smith, a.k.a. the Wolfman. Uh, during his career and, and after, he famously owned and operated the Holiday Bar in Tampa, Florida. 
Uh, when he teamed with Al Smith, uh, they weren't, I don't believe they were actually brothers, but they were billed as brothers uh, in the 1950s. The two were billed as the Cough Drop Brothers. <laughs> Up next, Buck Jones. I believe his real name was Harvey Jones, and he may have been married to wrestler Terry Lachance. Hmm. Yasu Fuji. Oh, wow. He, he worked in Knoxville as a the hilariously named Colonel Yankee. Yes. Uh, and that's Yankee is two words. Y-A-N yes. and then K-Y. Yeah. 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 And then finally, Thunderbolt Cannon. After wrestling, Thunderbolt Cannon had worked for a trucking company in British Columbia. Next up are the preliminary wrestlers. First on the babyface side of things, Nick Pacciano. Who was a, a construction worker prior to becoming a wrestler, credited with uh, one of the men being one of the men who built this Calgary skyline. I thought you were going to say, we, who built this city? Who built this city <laughs> on Rock and Well, he may have. Uh, he's best he known have. for competing in Stampede. As a matter of fact, the two months he spent here in Vancouver in 1971 appears to be the only time he ever worked for anyone other than Stampede. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, next up is Dave Muir. M-U-I-R. He was one of Roddy Piper's first opponents after Piper ventured off the uh, Tony Candelo circuit. Bill Cody. Uh, he once had a fan follow his car to a dead-end street and shoot at him repeatedly with a pellet gun. Uh, up next, uh, a youngster who would later become uh, a handsome lad, but John Anson. Well, after wrestling, he opened a marina slash resort in Vancouver. He also, I believe he was 6'4". He's a pretty tall guy, but there were at least two occasions where he was the shorter member of a tag team uh, championship team because uh, hmm. he once teamed with Don Leo Jonathan mm -hmm. titles, and then he also teamed with Randy Morse, a.k.a. Sky High Morse, who I believe was 6'6". Wow, those are some tall, tall boys. And then finally on the preliminary babyface side of things, Pat O'Brien. Pat O'Brien, unfortunately, had his first recorded match against Abdul the Butcher. Talk about out of the frying pan and into the fork. Jesus, yeah. Uh, preliminary heels. First up, Rick Ronaldo. Rick Ronaldo claims, I guess the important word is claims, to have worked as an FBI informant. Uh, yes, so uh, if the story is true, uh, he infiltrated a white supremacist group in Idaho. <laughs> to the arrest of three men who were driving to Seattle intending to bomb a discotheque. Discotheque. Yes. Oof. Uh, up next, John Foley. I was surprised to learn that he worked for Ann Gunkel's Outlaw promotion in 74. Yeah, he did. He also, uh, a little bit after that, he was in Gulf Coast uh, or Southeastern. I, I think it was, I forget. I think it was after uh, the switch over to Southeastern. But he teamed with fellow Brit Ted Heath. And the two of them were billed as the British Bulldogs almost a decade before Davy Boy and Dynamite were given wow. that. Next up is Poncho Lopez. And finally, Jack Bentz. Bentz received a Navy Cross from President Truman. Uh, Bentz was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where a young Al Getz once saw Rafael Palmero play double A baseball literally three weeks before he first got called up to the majors. Wow, that's cool. Uh, Palmero, not me. Ah, yes, yeah. of course, of course, of course, of course. Um, 
So uh, as I mentioned, we're going to talk more about Stephen Little Bear later on in this podcast, but there is a profile on him written by our pal David Gibb on the website as part of the A Year in the Life. It goes over some of his bigger feuds during the year and looks at how they played out in Vancouver, uh, which was the main city in the territory, generally run on Monday nights. Now, other frequently run towns in British Columbia included Victoria, Surrey, Chilliwack, Nanaimo, and Kamloops. While in Washington State, the two most frequently run towns were Tacoma and Bellingham. They typically taped their TV program on Wednesdays in Burnaby, which is a city just east of Vancouver. Later in the year, it appears they switched to taping TV on Tuesday nights instead of Wednesdays. And there's some evidence suggesting that when they did TV, they did not also run house shows that night. Uh, we've talked some territories. They would do their TV tapings in the day or the afternoon, and then the wrestlers would be off to work a house show that night. Um, we did see in Mid-Atlantic when wrestlers worked the midweek TV tapings, they did not work an additional house show that night. And that seems to be the case here uh, for the most part. Hmm. Talking about Washington State, many of the towns were promoted by Helen Olson. Helen and her husband, Cliff, had promoted wrestling in the state for many years, uh, and Cliff was a former wrestler, but Cliff had passed away in November 1970. And when you take that piece of info and add it to the following piece of info, you can sort of see cause and effect. And, and basically the other piece of info is that they were running less and less shows in Washington state as you get further into the 1970s. So we could see with her husband passing away and now it being a one person operation instead of two, perhaps it was easier to sort of dwindle down. But according to records from the state's athletic commission, there were 72 house shows in the state of Washington in 1971 using talent booked out of Vancouver in 1972, that number dropped to 55 and the following year it went down to 38. Mm -hmm. So not and, and that sets in motion another thing that happens, and that is Dean Silverstone uh, starting his superstar championship wrestling promotion in oh. the state in 1973. Yeah, as Vancouver is running less and less shows and Portland only ran shows in a small sliver of the state of Washington, which was basically um, considered a suburb of Portland uh, and got the Portland TV and they were the towns of Longview, Washington, and the town of Vancouver, Washington, which if you're an eagle-eared listener, you'll yep. remember is nowhere near Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> in fact, it's as far away from British Columbia as a city in Washington state could be. <laughs> so yeah, so there's, you can just sort of see how everything happened. Cliff Olson passing away, leading to Helen probably reducing her schedule, opening the door for Dean to... <laughs> open up his promotion in yeah. uh, late 1973. One of the great things about the state of Washington is we do have records from the state's athletic commission. They are currently Ooh. housed at the state archives in Olympia. And uh, among the many uh, interesting things, we, we have attendance records for pretty much every show held in Washington state for decades, uh, similar to what we have in Kansas um, we also have it for Washington. So um, we've talked about attendances and, and, you know, the problem is we don't have consistent attendance figures from every house show held for every territory of all time. But I want to ask you, John, we've sort of done okay. this and talked about what attendance figures we, we have out there. If we're looking at 1971, what do you think uh, for house shows run, house shows run in the U S and Canada 
what would the average attendance per show, what do you think it might be? Oh, boy. Yeah. I'd probably guess, I would just guess a thousand people. You know what I mean? For every five, 10, or 20,000 person show, you know, how many 200 person right. shows were there? You know, I guess a thousand, just to just a nice round number. Doesn't sound too high. Doesn't it's gonna go prices right it and go with a thousand. We, we talk of you know, for all the talk about Madison Square Garden, also, you know, for every Madison Square Garden, there was the Elks Lodge in Queens and Witchy's Arena in uh, in New England, and you know, the smaller venues, the tent shows that they ran. Uh, the other thing to think about promotions on the smaller side, and Vancouver is a good example of this. Their best drawing town was Vancouver. The rest of the week, they often ran split crews. So they're running in two smaller towns. So not only are those shows drawing less, but there's more of them because there's one mm, show yeah. in Vancouver in a week. And then there's, you know, more shows with these split crews. The same if you look at Amarillo, Thursday nights in Amarillo was their, you know, their their A, their A show where pretty much everyone was booked. The rest of the week, they're often splitting the crews up into two smaller towns. So there's more when you're talking about an average of every show there's going to be more shows in smaller towns than there are in the bigger cities. My guess, and I actually, last year, I put out something on what at the time was known as Twitter. And I just, as a benchmark, I used a thousand because it's a nice round number. And I yep. believe it was lower than the actual average, but not by a lot. Hmm. What's funny is I got, I got people, you know, arguing with me on both sides saying I was not only too low, but some was saying that it was too high. Huh. Now that I've done enough of this, I'm inclined to think the number would be closer to 1,500 than 1,000, but it's probably somewhere in that range. I think mm -hmm. if we had, and we will never have good attendance records for every show held you know, in the US and Canada for a several year period of time, but I truly think if we did, and, and looking at what we've got so far, between 1,000 and 1,500, I, I'd be surprised if it was lower than a thousand, and I'd be surprised if it was greater than fifteen hundred. Yeah, that's that's fifteen fifteen hundred sounds. Yeah, when you think about, it, I mean, you have to think about the like I said, the entire country. Yeah, right. and, you, and 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 there's and you know we know Montreal do drew huge huge crowds in the early seventies. Then of course you get you actually have two promotions drawing huge crowds in the city, but they're both full time circuits, so they're running those smaller towns as well. So yeah. you know that again. That's what we think. And in our cases, we've looked at as many attendance figures from 1971 as are available to make this estimation. So, you know, hopefully our our experience and expertise has enabled us to narrow down what it is. But if we look at Washington State, the average attendance um, for those 78 shows or whatever the number was, was 499.4 fans paying $1,067.88, which works out to an average ticket price of $2.14. Um, typically, the tickets were $2.50 for reserved seats, $2 for general admission, and $1 for children. And in fact, just recently on X, I posted a breakdown of the percentage of children that attended these house shows. And huh. I think it ended up being 19.4%. Um, because with Washington, we know for a fact that they had a, a distinct child ticket tier and oh. documents from the state commission tell you how many tickets were sold in each tier. Oh, nice. So what I did when I say this, what that average means, it's 
for every show, I looked at how many child tickets were sold compared to the total number of tickets for that show and took a percentage and then did a per- take an average of all the percentages for all those shows. Of note, uh, breaking this down a little further, the shows in Tacoma drew an average of just 381 fans per show, which huh. given the size of the city seems awfully low. Very surprising. Yeah, and, uh, and and adding insult to injury, they actually lost their venue in Tacoma in September 1971 and didn't run the town again for 11 months. Their best regular town in the state was Bellingham, where they averaged 703 fans and topped 1,000 twice. But the three largest crowds in the state all came in Spokane, Washington. If you ever looked at a map of Washington, Spokane is so far away from you know, uh, Seattle, Tacoma and other, you know, sizable cities, uh, in, in the state that it's, it, it might as well be in Idaho. So while they drew really well in Spokane, who knows how much it costs to run these shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were promoted by a separate entity, which uh, according to the commission records was known as the M and M ticket agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, they drew, they drew just over 2000 fans in February, for a show headlined by Don Leo Jonathan against Blackjack Lanza, who was brought in from the AWA. Um, Attendance dropped off substantially after the first few shows, and by October, they were down to 533 fans in Spokane, and they stopped running it uh, as regularly as they had been. Interesting. Now, in British Columbia, we don't have any official commission documents, but we do have attendance figures reported in the newspaper for most of the weekly cards in Vancouver. And if you recall, back over the summer, we sort of established some ground rules for assessing whether newspaper attendance figures are are likely to be real or not. One of the the things we said, John, was if they regularly list the attendance, it is more likely or less likely to be accurate. If they regularly list, more likely. Yes, correct. If they only list it for a couple of shows, chances are not A, it's only the really, really good crowds, but B, there's more likely to be some embellishment. But when yeah, they yeah. list it every, you know, just about every week and it's, you know, actual numbers, it's not, you know, for, it's not rounded to 4,000 or 2,000. If it's 2,622, to me, that makes it more likely that these numbers are accurate or at the very least only slightly uh, inflated. Yeah. So with that in mind, the average attendance for the cards in Vancouver was 2,723 fans. They typically ran a venue uh, that seated about 3,000, though they ran larger venues several times during the year for big cards. Uh, The largest reported crowd in Vancouver during the year was at one of those larger venues where they drew 6,568 fans for a show topped by Dory Funk Jr. defending the world title against Don Leo Jonathan. So they had some highs and they had some lows. Uh, Typically, (laughs) uh, you know, when they knew they, you know, when they knew they were going to be running the big building, they would uh, bring in, it's when they knew Dory was coming in. Also, um, the the normal venues they ran were located on the uh, PNE fairgrounds. And in the summer, uh, they the fair took over the entire uh, exhibition for a couple of months. So they usually were forced to run outside uh, of, of that area. And at one point they were running summer cards in Carisdale Arena, which 
hosted the first rock and roll concert ever in Vancouver when Bill Haley and his Comets came in 1955. Wow. Um, but talking about that big card uh, for Dory and Don Leo, also on that card, Stephen Littlebear and Dean Higuchi beat the team of John Quinn and Dutch Savage to win the Canadian tag team titles. And before we go into more about Little Bear, what's interesting is their their tag team titles were called the Canadian tag team titles, except when they ran house shows in the state of Washington. <laughs> when those same titles with the same lineage and the same champions were called the Northwest tag team titles. Okay. But uh, speaking of Stephen Little Bear, it was one of his many big successes in the territory. And uh, there's something interesting about Stephen Little Bear. Uh, well, we've often said that a lot of documented wrestling history is based on fuzzy logic in the words of wrestlers who were apt to embellish, misremember, or even flat out lie. Also, at times we take wrestling lore as fact or make deductive leaps based on worked ring names or hometowns. And I think that may have happened with Stephen Littlebear. Yeah, Stephen, so, so, I don't know how this happened, but this is definitely a first for me uh, on, on the podcast and yeah. my research. And somehow I feel like I know less about him, the person, than I did it before I started looking into his career. Right. So within, <laughs> within the wrestling world, uh, most sources list Little Bear's um, Stephen Little Bear, who wrestled under the ring names of Steve Kovacs and Vince Bryant, um, as having the real "quote unquote" government name of Vince Bryant and being the real life brother of wrestler Chief Little Eagle, whose real name was Richard Bryant and mm -hmm. was born and grew up in Texas. And in fact, they also claim that Little Bear was was born and raised in Irving, Texas. We think this is not true. And we think what happened is somehow some somebody saw that little bear very briefly used the ring name Vince Bryant at the beginning of his career, assumed that was his real name, and that since he later did a Native American gimmick, that he must have been related to the other wrestler whose last name was Bryant, and that is Richard Bryant. So both John and our pal David Gibb did some digging around, not only on Ancestry.com, but various newspaper archives. We have yet to find original source material linking the two or uh, confirming that Stephen Little Bear's real name was was Vince Bryant in any way, shape, or form. In fact, when Richard Bryant, Chief Little Eagle, died in 1990, there was no mention of any surviving siblings, and we think Stephen Little Bear was still alive at that time. Um, uh, David actually found uh, some census data on ancestry with Richard Bryant when he was, uh, a, I think, 11 or 12 years old, and his family. And there was no mention of the Bryant family, uh, including Richard, having a younger brother. So these aren't smoking guns. It's hard to prove that somebody wasn't related to someone. It'd be very easy to prove they were by finding a piece of evidence that says they were. But it seems that this might not have been true. And all I will say is both John and David tried really hard to find evidence and came up empty. Um, and there's one more piece of evidence that suggests that Stephen Little Bear, a.k.a. Steve Kovacs, a.k.a. Vince Bryant, was not 
Texas born and bred. And you can hear that piece of evidence as one of the YouTube clips that John has curated and that we will put up on our YouTube channel. So, John, talk about that one first, and then let's talk about the other uh, clips of Stephen Little Bear on YouTube that we have put together in a playlist. Yeah, the first clip, usually I, I don't in, include uh, exclusive, exclusively audio clips, you know, because generally speaking, they're not that exciting to, to to listen to or or unless it's super rare or something we've never heard but uh this audio here we've got stephen little bear portland 72 um i included because when you listen to this you or i can i definitely got the feeling that he was a canadian guy he sounds like a canadian person uh his little aboats uh, you know those little that little canadian uh accent there uh and not like a guy definitely not like a guy from texas um so i, I definitely got more of a and and Canadian... this was when he was and this was when he was billed as stephen little bear yeah not yep, necessarily yep, yep. Bill, you know uh which again there were they obviously didn't call them native americans but in canada there were uh indigenous peoples uh that are, are you know linked to what we call Native Americans, yep. um, but you know, yeah, it, it it definitely doesn't sound like he's trying to fake the accent. No, and how does he sound Canadian to you when you listen to him? Absolutely, okay. Uh, he absolutely Canadian. sounded, uh, if not Canadian, Minnesotan or North Dakotan. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, uh, you know, like he could have been. He could have been a character in in the the Coen Brothers movie Fargo. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of of a video for for uh old Steven out there just based on what the 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 time he worked you know retired in you know early 81 uh and the places he worked you know there's not a lot of Vancouver TV from from the 70s out there um what we do have is mostly his sort of mid early mid 70s run there uh in 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 Memphis uh we've got a couple a uh, couple tag matches and a singles match. Now, there's a I got a tag match with him and Ricky Gibson versus Chris Gallagher, who is a young Dutch Mantel, and, and would um, be in our spinoff podcast, charting wrestlers <laughs> body hair. <laughs> no, absolutely, uh, Gorilla Marconi. Yeah, yeah. This is a, I don't know if this is a no DQ match or a tornado tag match or what is going on here because this match is out of control from the very beginning. Everyone is in the ring at the same time. Manager Jim Kent jumping off the top rope onto people. Dutch Mantel running around with chairs, hitting people. Everyone brawling on the floor. No finish. Just complete chaos for the entire six minutes. Uh, the next one is a uh, third fall, the best of three falls match. Uh Steve Kovacs and Tojo Yamamoto versus the Blue Scorpion and Don Kent. Uh, get quite a bit of Kovacs here, or, or, or Kovac, as he's referred to. Uh, gets busted open. So he gets some Kovacs blood. Um, goes after Don Kent with one of Tojo's wooden shoes. Blue Scorpion slides a foreign object under his mask to get the win for him and Kent. Nothing, nothing too exciting here, but some cool footage from the Nashville Fairgrounds, if that's your thing. Um, this last match is very, very short, probably my favorite of the, of the three that I've chosen joined in progress. Don Kent, again, defending the mid America championship against Steve Kovac, just the tail end of the match here. 
the story seems to be Kovac fighting from behind for most of the match, seems to be finally mounting his serious comeback, almost locking in his uh, finisher, the abdominal stretch. Kent is able to hip toss his way out of it again and again. Uh, we get a ref bump. Kent's manager, Sir Clements, interferes with the umbrella. It's it's a hits him with the umbrella, and Kent ultimately gets the win. Nothing too wild and crazy here, but a cool, if not kind of cookie cutter type finish that was very well executed by all involved. So be sure to check those out on our YouTube channel. Just search for Charting the Territories on the YouTube. Um, John, you also uh, started digging through newspaper clippings from various times and places. Uh, right. To see if, uh, if Kovacs slash Little Bear was ever billed as being from Texas or somewhere close to that. And, of course, hometowns in wrestling aren't necessarily real. Uh, I don't mm. think Foley had ever been to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. <laughs> but we might be able to find, you know, some information that, that leads us strongly in one direction or another based on what we find. So sort of take this step by step in 1959, when he's working around Michigan, mm-hmm. John, he was billed as being from Canada. Okay. And then yeah. not too long after that in Georgia, he's billed as being from either Detroit or Buffalo. And then when he worked for Crockett, he builds being from Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then in 1961, when he first debuts for Goulas, he's billed as being from? Canada, again. Uh, and then they narrow it down further to Toronto. Toronto, so yes. Yep, yep. There's a there's a common theme there, uh, with the one outlier being, uh, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, he is from, if not Canada, the very far northern regions of the uh, continental United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, this doesn't prove anything, but if you're you know trying to find pros and cons of whether he's from whether he was truly from Texas or truly from Canada, this is a small notch in the favor of slightly more likely that he truly was from Canada, which yeah. makes means makes it almost impossible for him to have been the real life brother of Richard Bryant, which of course brings into question whether his real name actually was Vince Bryant. As a matter of fact, it's generally believed that Stephen Little Bear died in 1998, but the name of the person whose obituary that comes from was Stephen Kovacs. Yeah. So um, if that if that's truly him, that means almost certainly that his real name was Steve Kovacs and not Vince Bryant. I will say the obituary makes no mention of his uh, time as a wrestler. It doesn't say much about him at all. So it doesn't. No. Mean he wasn't. But it is slightly possible that this isn't even the real Stephen Little Bear, unless someone um, you know has more information that that they found. And again, we looked and we couldn't find anything. So yeah. Who knows? We we truly, as as John said at the beginning of this segment, uh, I think we know less about Stephen Little Bear <laughs> after researching him than, than we thought we did before. I really did, yeah. And in this in this obit, and again, not not to disparage any anybody else's work, obviously, but I would love to all the other uh, stuff I've read about him in in various books, newsletters, etc. Uh, either mention. Or either one side or the other. They're either on the Vince Bryant side, that he's the brother, you know, or the Stephen Kovac side, you know, died on 92998. But none of them really give us that source material yeah, that we need to know. I hate, I hate to be, I hate to sound like, hey, I'm just asking questions here. I'm just asking questions here. But 
to the historians that have put down their records. Um, for example, uh, I know Mike Rogers um, listed, uh, you know, the death is September 29th, 1998. This Stephen Kovacs to Stephen Little Bear, for example, yeah. did is there something? Did someone catch up with Stephen Little Bear years after his interim career ended and learn that he had retired to Nashville? Because mm-hmm. if he did, then yes, this Stephen Kovacs in Nashville that died in 1998, you know, could be him. And in fact, I will say the age matches up perfectly with what Stephen Little Bear's age almost certainly was when he first debuted in 1959, which was yeah. I think. Would have been he would have been like 23. So it does match up perfectly. I'm not saying it's not him. I'm just saying I would love to find one other connecting link to that. And if that's the case, then that does sort of prove that his real name wasn't Vince Bryant and proves what we've been saying all along that we don't think he was related to Chief Little Eagle. Yeah. No, even I, I went I, I I went back and I found was able to find like a marriage record for the Stephen Kovacs and uh Bobby Kovacs uh, in the early 70s. And, you know, even there, there's no there's no occupation or anything listed on there, like professional wrestler or anything to to to, to definitively like, say that. Right. So it's so not tough. tough. Or even uh, even if it said, that, you know, uh, Mr. Kovacs originally came from Canada, like even if it was something as innocuous as that, as that, that helps us again, me make it slightly more likely that we've yeah. got a man. So, you know, and this, this is the problem with uh, wrestling research and wrestling history is a lot of it seems to have been based on, a, 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 as an example, someone on Facebook years ago was trying to tell me that Leo Seitz, the wrestler was Michael Hayes's father. And I asked them what their evidence was. He said, well, they had the same last name. There you go. That was his only piece of evidence. I'm like, oh, look, and that's, you know, when you, when you hear that, okay, that's worth looking into. A, I think Michael would have mentioned it at some point over the last, you know, 40 years. And he has it. Also, if you look at the age, it's not biologically impossible for Leo to have been Michael's father, but it's pretty hard pretty difficult for it to have been. The case. <laughs> so, you know, when you look at things like that, again, if you, if all you have is, well, this wrestling website says that they're brothers, that doesn't help me. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for something more. And if it's out there, show me. And uh, like, like, like with the correction about the Houston TV, if we, if, if someone shows me evidence that says his real name was Vince Bryant and I, it checks out, I will, I will be here next month. That's the first thing we will talk about. Hell yes. There's, and there's so many, even in his wrestling career, there's a lot of weird uh, question marks, you know, like, like for 1965, he's just gone. Right. You know, like, what is he, is he working under another gimmick? Was he hurt? Was he in the military? Was he working in another field altogether? Who knows? And the same thing from like, like 68 through the first you know, half three quarters of 69. He's nowhere to be found. Like there's one appearance in Hawaii, which there's, I mean, I guess there could be a chance that's not even really him. If it is him, why doesn't he show up in Japan or in the West coast or of Australia US Canada? or somewhere like that? Yeah, it's just, so there's, there's, that there's, makes it weird. Yeah. So you know, the idea is to then go through every wrestler we have that worked in that time frame and find out if there's anyone else that, if there's anyone that, just shows up for three months that we don't know anything else about them. Yeah. And maybe it's the same guy. And maybe some of these states have commissioned records that we can still find uh, that we can figure that out. So oh, Tennessee, Tennessee, right? So we could do Tennessee. Um, Tennessee, nothing uh, before uh, the fall of 76. 
is when we start getting license info. Damn it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, was he still there after? I the- think, I think. Is that when he went to McGurk? I think that in 76, he was working for like the UWA outlaw, the Les, the Thez, Luthez promotion. So uh, we can yeah, we can go back and check it. It's possible. It's possible. I've got I do have a lot of stuff from the Tennessee Commission. I just I don't have I haven't had the time to go through it yet. Um, when we get when we get closer to covering Goulas's territory on this podcast is when I'm really going to have to dig into that stuff. Yeah. Well, I guess he was there in the early 60s, too, with, you know, with Shandor Kovacs. Right. So there's that. So uh, but we uh, like I said, we have nothing oh, before yeah. info before or 76. OK, mm. um, we also uh, have a good bit of newspaper clippings, some of which are funny or interesting or cute. Uh, we will post those on X. Be sure to check the hashtag CTTNOV23 to see all of them. You'll also find out which promotion decided to welcome all streakers to attend at least one of their cards in 1974. <laughs> Don't spoil the surprise, John. We're going to have to let our listeners find that on X for themselves. Okay. Stephen Little Bear was the top babyface in the territory during the year. He was there the whole year. His biggest feuds were against John Quinn, Ivan Koloff, and Dutch Savage. I also want to mention, speaking of Ivan Koloff, here they spelled his first name Y-V-A-N. Is it pro- pronounced Ivan also, or is it pronounced? Um, I would imagine it would be pronounced Ivan. Yvonne. Uh, but I don't know that uh, for a fact. As you said, there's d- not much in the way of TV from Vancouver in the uh, early 70s. And, and Koloff was only here for a, a few months. Yeah. Um, but his biggest feuds were against Quinn, Koloff, and Savage. The the, the profile uh, written by David Gibb on our website looks at these feuds as well as some of his others. Uh, and as far as some of the other biggest feuds in the territory and how they played out in different towns, you can visit our website, chartingtheterritories.com, and check out A Year in the Life for that information, as well as more stuff that we couldn't cram into this month's podcast. Uh, speaking of cramming, John, I hope you've been studying your wrestling trivia, because it's time for... John, are you ready? I'm ready, baby. For a while now, we've been testing your knowledge uh, by playing Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. But Mm -hmm. now, starting this month, you will not only be testing your knowledge, but you will be competing against a different challenger every month. And I've already reached out to quite a few people that are interested in in challenging you and taking you on. What I'm going to do, I'm going to do this wrestling style you know we talk often about how wrestlers are when they first come to the territory they start out in the prelims and if they win you know they might face a tougher opponent the next time and so mm-hmm. on and so forth till they're in the main event that's what i'm going to try and do here is each time you win i want to put you uh, i want to find a even tougher challenger for you to face the following month and, oh boy. And, hopefully, and maybe it'll build to you getting a word a world title shot and we'll get flair to come on the podcast and challenge you <laughs> but your first opponent is not rick flair it's it's now time uh let's meet your challenger for this month this is longtime listener and super fan of charting the territories todd rosiak and i am challenging john boucher to a round of gordon soley's championship wrestling trivia 
All right. Longtime listener and super fan, Todd Rosiak. Todd, for our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a lifelong resident of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I've been employed as a sports writer at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel now for just over 30 years. I uh, just wrapped up my 13th year covering the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, but I've also covered the Green Bay Packers, Milwaukee Bucks, college basketball, and uh, really just about anything else that happens in this area. And my bosses have even been so kind as to indulge me a little bit over the years and allow me to write a little bit of pro wrestling, which is always fun. Um, considering where I'm from, it probably comes as no surprise that my initial fandom was centered around Vern Gagne's AWA. Uh, with Milwaukee being such a stronghold for the territory back in its heyday, especially. Um, my first wrestling memory is is sitting in my great-grandmother's sunroom as a seven-year-old, flipping through the channels and on a Sunday morning and coming across the weekly AWA program and seeing Bobby Heenan and the Blackjacks on the screen and just being completely mesmerized by what I saw on TV. Um, I attended way more AWA and WWF cards as a kid than I could probably ever count in Milwaukee. Um, and I would say probably my best and most recent wrestling moment came uh, in early June. I was in Tampa on a work trip and uh, I made a pilgrimage to 106 North Albany, better known as the Sportatorium for championship wrestling from Florida. And uh, I also went out to the uh, Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. So both of those were really uh, cool things that I was able to check out in person for myself. And I'll give you one fun fact. I live three miles away from the infamous McDonald's that ultimately led to the brawl, arrest, and imprisonment of both Ken Patera and Mr. Saito back in the mid-80s. Well, all right. Well, well, Todd, if you come up short in this uh, challenge, I hope you don't go berserk uh, like Ken and uh, Mr. Saito <laughs> did uh, in response, because I think the police will be more prepared to handle you than they were to <laughs> professional wrestlers. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm strong enough to pick up a big boulder like Ken Patera either did either and uh, throw it through the window. But be that as it may, I am ready to challenge John. Yes, Todd might not have brute power, but let's see if he's got brain power as we play Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Um, briefly, I'm going to go over the rules. Um you will both have 20 seconds to answer each question. I will ask Todd all four questions on one card first. Uh, while John is in a uh, soundproof uh, isolation chamber that we built in his tiny apartment in New York City. Um, Todd, you can ask for a hint for one of the first three questions. You must ask for the hint at the time the question is asked, during your 20-second uh, you know, allotment to answer it, the clock will be stopped once you ask for the hint and will be restarted after I give the hint. However, and here's the catch, if you do ask for a hint, John will automatically be given the same hint for the same question and be given a hint for the fourth question, which is typically a true-false or fill-in-the-blank question. If both you and John answer the same number of questions correctly, there will be a bonus question for a tiebreaker. All right, John, this is your first challenger, Todd Rosiak from Milwaukee, sports writer for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and longtime fan of the AWA and uh, wrestling in general. So how do you feel? Are you ready? I got, I got, I've got my, uh, my cheese hat on, my cheese head hat. All right, okay. All right. I'm going to need you to step inside your isolation booth 
while we go ahead and uh, ask Todd uh, the questions. Okay, good luck, Todd. All right, so we are ready to begin. We are going to start with question one. And I'm going to preface this by saying that uh, in the question, it refers to the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards. Um, This particular question was actually um, refers to before Pro Wrestling Illustrated was actually published. These were these awards were published in Sports Review Wrestling Magazine. And so just keep that in mind. So question number one, who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Inspirational Wrestler of the Year in 1974? Uh, Al, I hate to do it. I'm going to have to use my hint right off the bat. Okay, with uh, eight seconds elapsed, you have chosen to use a hint. So here is the hint. And as soon as I finish with the hint, the clock will restart. Uh, While this wrestler is often said to have played football at West Texas State University, not only did he not play football there, uh, it's believed he was actually never enrolled in the school. I am going to go with Dick Murdoch. That is correct. Okay. One for one. Now, question number two, name the namesake and tag team partner of Chief J. Strongbow. I am going to say Jules Strongbow. That is correct. Two for two. All right, moving on to question number three. Which wrestler received a record 48,000 calls when appearing as a guest on Boston's WHDH radio sports huddle call-in show? Uh, I am going to go Hulk Hogan. That is incorrect. The correct answer was Rowdy Roddy Piper. All right. This is your last question in the regular round. You've gotten two out of three, right? Here is question number four. True or false? Roddy Piper has competed in WrestleMania's one, two, and three. Mm. Ten seconds. I am going to go with false. That is incorrect. Uh, he did compete in the first, all of the first three WrestleMania. So, Todd, you are two for four. Now we will signal John to leave the isolation chamber, and uh, he will now be asked the same four questions. John. Todd answered two out of four questions correctly. Mm. If you get three or more correct, you win. If you get zero or one correct, Todd wins. And if you also get two correct, we will move on to the bonus round. John, you will automatically get hints for question number one and question number four. Okay. In those two cases, I will read the hint immediately after reading the question, and then the timer will begin when I Finish the hint. Understood. So, question number one. 
And I want to preface this by stating that what's referred to in the question as the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards were actually printed in Sports Review Wrestling Magazine uh, because this was prior to PWI actually being a thing. Gotcha. So, question number one. Who was the winner of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine's Inspirational Wrestler of the Year in 1974? And here's your hint. While this wrestler is often said to have played football at West Texas State, not only did he not play football there, it's believed he was never actually enrolled in the school. I'm going to go with Dick Murdoch. That is correct. One for one. All right. Question number two. Name the namesake and tag team partner of Chief J. Strongbow. Can you repeat the question for me? Name the namesake and tag team partner of Chief J. Strongbow. Namesake? Uh, the, the Jewel Strongbow? That is correct. Okay. You are now tied with Todd. If you get one of the next two questions right, you win. And if you don't, you will be going to the bonus round. Okay. Question number three. Which wrestler received a record 48,000 calls when appearing as a guest on Boston's WHDH radio sports huddle call-in show? Bruno San Martino. That is incorrect. The answer, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Wow. All right. Question number four, John. If you get this right, you win. If not, we go to the bonus round. And remember, immediately after I ask the question, I will also give a hint. Okay. True or false, Roddy Piper has competed in WrestleManias 1, 2, and 3. Hint, at WrestleMania 2, Piper faced Mr. T in a boxing match. Uh, true. He did compete in WrestleMania as one, two, or three. That is correct. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. John, you have defeated your worthy opponent, Todd Rosiak, in the first ever installment of the new John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Woo. Ha. Huh. I got to get, get a little nervous in that isolation booth back there. Hey, geez. I know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's hard when you can't hear what's going on. You don't know. Yes. It, but uh, three questions right to Todd's two. Um, before we say goodbye to Todd, I want to ask him real quickly. Uh, tell us about your experience playing Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia. Uh, you know what? I listening to John play it over the many months. Um, Normally I'm running on a treadmill and it's, it's great entertainment for me as he's laboring through his answers and trying to guess, I, I'm thinking to myself, Oh, come on. That's so easy. That's so easy. It's not so easy when you're on that end and, and the pressure's on. Um, I hated to use my hint right off the bat, but it was a pre, it was a very good hint. I was able obviously to get that one. I felt really good after the first two. Uh, third one I got wrong, of course. The fourth one I'm embarrassed by because I, Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, was my childhood hero growing up. I was able to meet him about 15 years ago. And my initial thought right off the bat was it's true, but then I talked myself out of it thinking, oh, that's too straightforward. That's too easy. And I remember John had that same issue uh, a few episodes back and um I'm kicking myself. I feel like I should have had three out of four, but uh, the listeners, 
Yeah. Listeners, it's uh, not as easy as it seems following along at home. So keep that in mind if any of you want to step up to the plate and challenge John to a round of Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Todd Rosiak, thank you so much for joining us and for being the guinea pig of uh, a new uh, a twist, a new twist to a segment we've been doing for a while. Thanks for playing along. And uh, of course, listeners who want to um, learn more about Todd and what he does, and uh, especially if you're partial to the Milwaukee Brewers or sports up in that area, be sure to follow him on X, the app formerly known as Twitter. We'll plug all that later on and I'll put it out on X. So uh, again, Todd, thanks so much. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. So you are undefeated now. Uh, which means I guess I'm going to have to find a, a slightly more difficult competitor for you next month. And I, I think I actually I think I actually have somebody in mind. So uh, oh, geez. I'll, I'll, hit, I'll okay. hit the bat phone after we uh, go off the air. And that about okay. does it for this month. I think uh, we might as well end on a high note with John's uh, incredible victory. Yes. Uh, next month, usually I say what territory we're going to cover next month. Um, but this time I'm, I'm just going to. Tea, give you a little tease. We're we're going to look at one of the largest territories uh, in the early 70s as measured by surface area and also by average attendance. But there's one other thing that set this territory apart from others in 1971. Um, in addition to the spot rating and the feuds and all the other things, some of the unique statistics I calculate are win-loss records on a babyface versus heel basis. How often does a babyface win? And all the territories we've looked at so far for 1971, the baby faces won more than the heels. The closest one was Stampede, where babies won 43%, heels won 40%, and they went to a draw 17%. Obviously, these don't include face versus hate, face or heel versus heel matches, just clearly defined baby face versus clearly defined heel. But the territory we're going to cover next month bucks that trend. It's going to be one where the heels appear to win more often than the baby faces. What territory are we talking about? You'll have to wait a little bit longer to find out, or you can follow me on X at Al Gets Wrestling, and I might just spill the beans. Hmm. And along the lines of spilling the beans, I'm happy to announce the third book from Charting the Territories, which will cover the Heart of America territory from 1971 through 1973, is currently scheduled to go on sale Thursday, December 7th. The book will be available worldwide on Amazon, or you can buy a copy directly from me at chartingtheterritories.com, and I'll autograph it for you if you do that. Also, for the first time, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to offer a pre-order discount uh, if you order the book from our site. I don't know exactly when I will have all that info up on our site, um, but of course, follow me on X at Al Gets Wrestling, and I will be sure to let people know. Now, each and every month, John and I learn new things as we do research for this podcast, or in the case of Stephen Little Bear, we we unlearn things we thought we knew, and we find out <laughs> yeah. that we don't. Uh, but each and every month, we each name one of those things on a segment we call "This Month I Learned." So, John, what did you learn this month? So, over the course of this last year, we've talked a lot about 1971. Uh, we've also talked a lot about attendance, uh, like. Many aspects of our great sport of pro wrestling attendance figures are another facet wherein we try to discern fact from fiction, whether it's something that happened close to 100 years ago or the latest AEW pay-per-view. Uh, 
growing up in the Northeast, we grew up hearing about Madison Square Garden, 20,000 people hanging from the rafters, yada, yada, yada. Um, so it's interesting for me to look at. I was looking at the WWWF in 1971 specifically. And, you know, like I talked about earlier, granted, they were doing great numbers in the garden, record sellout numbers, $100,000 gates, uh, great numbers for the most part in Boston and Philly as well. But then I was looking at Washington, D.C., specifically the National Arena, where they had recorded most of their TV tapings since the mid-60s. And by September of 71, attendance there had declined to the point that actually moved the tapings out of there to the Philadelphia Arena or to the Hamburg Fieldhouse. Uh, the Hamburg Fieldhouse is what you see on most of those all-star TV tapings uh, all the way up through when we start, we were kids in you know, mid-84. Um, and that was really interesting to learn, as I would have assumed they would be turning people away at the door, you know, uh, but that was clearly not clearly not the case in Washington, D.C. at the National Arena. And I was you know, sort of wondering if that was a case of them burning out the locals with the squash matches, which was the format for WWF TV. The National Arena tapings back then were done weekly. So you'd have, you know, five or six squash matches and a main event that sometimes was OK. You get like Gorilla Monsoon versus Blackjack Mulligan. But more often than not, it was like a Pedro Morales versus the Black Demon. So I could see people being burnt out on that. So as opposed to the Allentown Hamburg tapings where they would do, you know, taping three weeks or a month worth of TV at a time. And they'd give the crowd a couple dark matches that were more consistently actual main event quality matches. So that was uh, the interesting thing that I learned this month about the WWF TV tapings in 1971. This month I learned... An interesting tidbit about the wrestler uh, and former bodybuilder, Lindy Calder. And I will preface this by saying I'm not 100% certain that this is true, but I did enough digging around that I am reasonably certain it's accurate. Uh, so Lindy was a bodybuilder uh, who wrestled in Europe in the 60s and then in Canada, mostly for Stampede in the 1970s. He was born in Antigua, which makes him one of only four known professional wrestlers to have been born in Antigua. John, can you name one other? Uh, special delivery Jones. That is correct. Good nice. job. We didn't script that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but his family, Lindy Calder's family, moved to England when Lindy, whose real name was Lindy Calker, C-A-U-L-K-E-R, was a child. Now, Lindy had a sister named Doreen. And Doreen apparently once dated Eric Burden from the rock group The Animals. Huh. And the song for Miss Calker which was on the Animals album Animal Tracks, is believed to have been written about her or at least inspired by her. As a matter of fact, it's the only song on that album that was written by Eric Burden. Huh. So there you go. That's something that, if true, is uh, fairly interesting about a connection. And that would be the second pro wrestling connection I know of uh, with the Animals. Uh, Jimmy Rave. Uh, from Ring of Honor, and then, of course, from Indies all around Georgia, who I worked with many times over the years, used to come out to House of the Rising Sun. So that's another connection to the animals. So that does it for this month. Um, 
Of course, you can find me on X, the uh, application slash website slash uh, thing that's probably <laughs> going to destroy the whole world in a few years. <laughs> uh, <on> Twitter. <laughs> Uh, at Al Gets Wrestling. And um, if you're interested in learning more about Todd Rosiak and following him, uh, particularly if you're from Milwaukee uh, or, or the Wisconsin area, want to learn more about the Brewers or the Packers or anything like that, uh, you can give him a follow at, at Todd underscore Rosiak. That's T-O-D-D underscore R-O-S-I-A-K. So John, where can our listeners find you? And do you have anything uh, interesting in the works? I got nothing interesting in the works at the moment. Follow me on Twitter or X. Damn it. Now <laughs> oh, I'm almost dog. Oh, so close. It's written right there. I got it highlighted and everything on follow me on X. I, I, uh, J O N underscore B O U C H E R on X. Uh, I promise that I will not contribute to the destruction of the world via anything I post on X. But the artificial intelligence learning machines will take everything he posts and, and suck it into their wisdom and use that to destroy the world. So think about that. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, there's no escaping it. Uh, the Charting the Territories podcast <laughs> comes out on the second Thursday of the month for as long as there are months and calendars and a universe. Uh, to be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. We've got five weeks between episodes because November is one of the uh, few months a year with five Thursdays. So our next episode will be coming out on Thursday, December 14th. And a week prior to that, Thursday, December 7th, is currently scheduled as the on-sale date for the third book from Charting the Territories. So until then, until December... Ooh. Uh, for John and myself. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you guys in December. And John, I'll see you in December. Yes, you will. <laughs>